This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This week I want to thank three generous patrons for their monthly donation. Liz Weeks, Eileen Chow, and Jonathan Guaret. Thanks for supporting my ongoing mission to turn stories into ideas. You too can help support the show for as little as $1 a month or with a one-time donation. Just go to the website, hifination.org. A couple years ago, I heard about this event at the French Embassy in New York City. The embassy brought in performers and philosophers, and for 12 hours overnight, from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., they had public performances, lectures, and debates, and they did it in short bursts. Every little bit only lasted about 20 minutes. They called it a night of philosophy. It's kind of like spending all night at a museum, but with ideas. And my first thought was, no one's going to go to this thing. This is very much of a French idea. We are kind of crazy in our country. The line was like two hours long. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was clearly there was, uh, people were hungry for that sort of thing and there wasn't the capacity for it. Over 5,000 people showed up. There were lines to get in even at 5 a.m. And it got so big that they had to move it into successively bigger spaces the next year and the next. Last year, the Night of Philosophy was held shortly after the election of Donald Trump and the night of the announcement of the first Muslim ban. There was this incredible foment sort of in the streets. People were going out to the airports to protest. People were protesting in front of the courts. It sort of felt like it was some kind of intellectual like crystallization of that sort of thing. It tapped into some sort of fundamental dissatisfaction with like how society is organized. The sort of liberal or global world order in one way or another isn't working for ordinary people and we have to kind of think our way out of it. We need to sort of create philosophical spaces in which people can sort of strategize and figure out what sort of society we want to build. Well, in 2018, the Night of Philosophy expanded to libraries all around the world, and I decided to go down to the Brooklyn Public Library, where the New York City event was held this year. All of you gathered here in our lobby are proof that against the odds, we will hold tight to knowledge. From Vassar College, you're listening to Hi-Fi Nation, the show about philosophy that turns stories into ideas. I'm Barry Lamb. Today, I'm going to do a little something different on the show. Two of us, me and producer Sandra Burton, are going to be wandering the floors of the Brooklyn Public Library all night from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. at the Night of Philosophy talking to some of the more than 10,000 people who showed up at the event. I'm serious, you couldn't even sit down at any of the talks. All the while, I'm going to bring you ultra-short bursts of philosophical ideas. Instead of having one idea and story, I'm bringing you lots of them in short chunks, just like they did at the Night of Philosophy. So if you didn't make it out to your own hometown's Night of Philosophy, or even if you did, here's the episode for you. I'm 
I arrived at the night of philosophy at around 7.30, and I knew I had a very long night ahead of me, so I headed straight for the free coffee. And an old man just asked me in Latin if the coffee was free, so that is where we are starting. With my coffee, I went over to see the keynote speech of the evening, which was being given by Professor George Yancey. He's a professor of philosophy of race, whiteness, and African-American philosophy, and he recently wrote a piece in the New York Times called Dear White America, in which he asked white Americans to accept their own racism in the way that he had come to accept his own sexism. In response, Professor Yancey received a lot of racist and violent threats. During his speech, he shared some with the audience. And please be aware, there is incredibly hateful speech in this. Dear nigger professor, you are a piece of shit destroying the youth of this country. You are neither African nor American. You are pure 100% nigger. You would never marry outside of your nigger race. That's a fact. You are uneducated with education. You are a fucking animal, just like all black people in the United States of America. One message he received just said the N-word hundreds of times, and he read aloud each word over and over again. He wanted to make us uncomfortable, and it definitely felt intense in there. It was a generally pretty white crowd, not in comparison to other philosophy events, because it was in Brooklyn, but still, it was definitely an audience that was caught off guard by such frank discussion of racism and whiteness. Once he was done, I felt like I definitely had to be on top of my white ally duties, like calling people out for saying something racist and that kind of thing. And with the keynote over, Sandra and I split up. The Brooklyn Public Library is huge. Within a half mile of it lives more than two million people. There are three floors in a basement level, and even then the place was packed. Hi, yeah, I'm Ian Olasov. I work with an organization called Brooklyn Public Philosophers, which organizes public philosophy events in Brooklyn and in New York City at large. Ian Olasov is a graduate student in philosophy who lives in Brooklyn. He co-organized the Dilemma series at the Night of Philosophy, where a philosopher leads a group discussion about some dilemma from everyday life. He also has a habit of taking philosophy to the streets of New York. The Ask a Philosopher booth is sort of what it sounds like. I mean, we set up a, a table at green markets, at book festivals, at pride parade, at block parties, at wherever, and hang out and talk with people about their philosophical questions. People either come by and sort of raise their own questions, or we sort of start a discussion based on the material that we provide. Even though I'm incredibly awkward at talking to strangers, I tried a little bit of this myself throughout the night. Uh, my name is Ian. How much power do you feel you have over your own happiness? I think we need to stop putting a focus on happiness and a focus on functionality. Pretending that everyone should always be happy puts a lot of false pressure on people. A lot more people would be something closer to happy if we could just allow them to be the way they are and still function in the world without feeling this pressure of why don't I want to shoot rainbows from my face. It's a lot of fun. It's really intense. I mean, you have these sort of moments of sort of flash intimacy with total strangers where you have some like really intense discussion about, you know, about what happiness is. And then like they, they disappear. They just sort of, you know, float back into the city. Well, I mean, you know, every time you get what's the meaning of life, for some reason, that's sort of the, the paradigmatic philosophical question. You got it, New Yorkers. 
Here's your philosophy short number one, the meaning of life. I'm Emily Park. I'm a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Auckland. There's no consensus on a single definition of life. A recent paper in 2011 counted 123 different definitions that are out there. When philosophers talk about meaning, one of the things they talk about is extension. How far does a certain word extend, like the word life? It extends to protozoa, trees, and dogs. Does it extend to viruses? How about the planet Earth? Is it alive? Emily Park works on this question, the meaning of life. Or to put it another way, the definition of the word life. It's a very hard question. Our current sample of life is a sample of one. When you look around at the living world, it's very, very diverse and heterogeneous, but it's all descended from a single common ancestor on Earth, which is usually called Luca, the last universal common ancestor. The latest theory about Luca is that it was a single-celled organism in the ocean vents of Earth where magma is boiling seawater and releasing enormous amounts of hydrogen. Because we all came from Luca, we share certain traits with it and with everything else that's alive on Earth. So all life uses the same set of 20 amino acids. One of the main ways today to look for bacteria on Earth is to look for ribosomal RNA sequences in the environment. These are all material definitions of life, or definitions having to do with the material that existing life is made out of. They don't seem to do the trick. There's a lot of features of life as we know it that we have good reasons to think are contingent. It's perfectly plausible that there could be life forms that don't have ribosomal RNA. If there were slight differences in the way the genetic code originated or slightly different letters made up DNA, then we would have to look for something different. We haven't had any experiences of life forms that are made up of different materials than us. But we can imagine, what if something came down to Earth and started running around and eating and growing, but the material that it's made up of is nothing like the earthly materials? By using our imagination like this, we seem to arrive at the idea that life is defined not by what makes it up, but what it does. You might think that evolution, that's something that's common to all life on Earth. Reproduction is metabolism. By metabolism, we mean something like exchanging material with the environment or chemically processing matter from the environment. Then arguably a candle flame counts as alive. There's this episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, which is about whether Data is alive. And Data uses fire as his example of like, am I like fire or something? Yeah, exactly. So if reproduction is a necessary condition for being alive, then a sterile hybrid like a mule arguably isn't alive. The definition of life isn't a mere semantic matter. It affects whether scientists can claim success in what they're doing. Synthetic biology is trying to engineer life from non-living materials in the laboratory. So trying to start with chemistry like soap and olive oil and lipid molecules and turn them into a living cell. Taking the genome out of a bacterium and replacing it with another bacterial genome and creating a new organism in a sense. So artificial life, for example, is a major area that try to engineer living or lifelike systems or harness various properties of life in evolving software, evolving computer programs, or to build robots that do lifelike things. The aim there is quite explicitly to understand life better through trying to engineer it. And that's an area where you really can't have a material definition of life because the media you're working in are explicitly not the kinds of things that have DNA. And metabolic, you know, that's like not relevant either. 
One things like metabolism or containers is another sort of thing that people cite as a key feature of life. Container in the sense of having a barrier separating you from your environment. We think of organisms as having those sorts of barriers. You could argue about that with a computer. Is a computer program an entity that's physically separated from its environment? There are a lot of existing definitions of life today on which a computer program could count as alive. Life is something that self-reproduces and has variation. So I'm frightened after this conversation of ours. Should I be? Or am I just being alarmist? Or am I tapping into a folk notion and not understanding the science? Yeah, I don't think you should be because, I mean, a lot of this is um, arguing about how loose or strict we want to be about the criteria for what counts as living. Plenty of the definitions I've mentioned, like if we just say life is evolution, there's tons of things that evolve that aren't biological, like technology or software. I think it's really important to think about life as a gradient or a matter of degree rather than as a dichotomy or the two categories that we can draw a line between. There are some features that are characteristic of life and if you have them all, you're living, and if you have none of them, you're non-living, and in between there's this combinatorial space of possibilities. And I think that way of thinking about it fits really naturally with thinking about it as a gradual transition. Meanwhile, back at the Night of Philosophy. For example, like, what constitutes life? Right. right? Like, it's 10.30 p.m., and this is Doris. She's telling me about the ethics of Mars exploration, something she wrote about recently and is still obsessing over the little details of the arguments. Like, how can we know what life would look like on Mars when life on Earth is our only reference point? But we really need to consider this. You know, yeah. Like, ex- ex- exploration has some bad connotations. For the first few hours, the place was packed. So packed that it was impossible to attend any of the talks or lectures at the beginning of the night. Like, a hundred people just got turned away from magic show so it's popping over here so i decided to sit down and do other things like play chess with a retired statistician What's your name? jean-claude 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 nice to meet you i'm sandra sandra yeah i suck by the way several hours and cappuccinos later the crowds died down enough that i finally made it into a session on cultural appropriation imagine someone like mike a white guy from the midwest in his 20s who moves to New York, and he discovers uh, West African dashikis, these really colorful shirts. And he's like, that's going to be my new look. I just think those are so cool. And he buys a bunch, and that's, that's his new look. That's how he dresses. And he has a friend who thinks, you know, this is just so wrong. There's something morally wrong with what you're doing. And she challenges him. She, like, tries to, you know, convince him that this is really morally wrong. This session on cultural appropriation was part of the Dilemma series. It is a little wrong, I think, for it to be okay generally. You, sh- you should at least have an understanding of it. Does he know where dashikis are from in Africa? Does each country in Africa have its own dashiki? Like- the problem I have with the critiques of cultural appropriation is that where are we going to draw the line? Because pretty much most things that come out of America are a result of borrowing from other cultures. We enslaved people, they came over from Africa, but without that enslavement and without that population that came over into the U.S., there would be no blues music, there would be no jazz, and there would be no rock and roll, there would be no hip-hop. 
The discussion lasted about 15 minutes, and it went as you might expect. A lot of defensiveness, a lot of slippery slope arguments. But as I'm packing up, an older white man rushes over to me. In response to a particular example, I was thinking that... He seems concerned about the double standard of African black men appropriating Western suits. It is, it is, in a sense, a form of appropriation. It's just coming from the, pe- the, the colonized people. Yeah, I couldn't care less about appropriation if it comes not but, but from a position of power, because power is everything. I'm one of these people who gets bothered all the time when people are saying, you know, white men this, white men that. And I'm like, yeah, there are white men who do that shit. I don't think I'm one of them. It's become acceptable recently to generalize in these ways about... But it's not, I mean, it's not just that, right? It's white men have been socialized that they are on top. And that impacts every single It depends on the particular case, I think. I would, personally, I would disagree. I think if I have experience... We'll come back to the conclusion of Sandra's argument at the Night of Philosophy after this message about our sponsor. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I've always been curious, eager to learn as much as possible. And with The Great Courses Plus, I'm always discovering something new. There's unlimited access to learn from award-winning experts about anything that interests you. Philosophy, history, language, travel, and more. There are thousands of lectures to choose from, and you can watch or listen to all of it with The Great Courses Plus app. I've been enjoying their course on Mind-Body Philosophy. In the course, Professor Patrick Grimm guides you through some of the key thought experiments that have given rise to the contemporary mind-body problem and how it impacts the most fundamental ways we conceive of ourselves in science, psychology, and the law. I just did an episode about free will and the law, and I did an earlier episode about the self. You can go a lot more in-depth in mind-body philosophy. Enjoy this or any other fascinating lectures from The Great Courses Plus, with a very special limited-time offer for our listeners. One month free. Get started today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash hi-fi, or just click the link on the show notes. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash hi-fi. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I'm Joshua Gert. I'm a professor of philosophy at the College of William and Mary. In our next philosophy short, Joshua Gert is defending something I think needs to be defended. Because I don't like it. 
I mean, I do like it, but I don't like that I like it. It's revenge. When I say that revenge is good, I'm making the claim that it's good in the way that pleasure is good, good in the way that knowledge or abilities are good. When I say something's good, what I mean is that if you make a sacrifice to get that thing, that makes sense. Gert's case that revenge is good is really an investigation into the nature of good and how we can know what things are good and what things are not. For some things, you can offer a proof that they're good in some sense of proof. One way to prove that something is good, like exercise, is to show what else it gets you that's also good, like health. But you can continue to ask questions about the things that are used in the argument, like health. Well, why is health good? To prove that health is good, you show what else it gets you. That's also good, like pleasure or pleasurable feelings. But at some point, you have to ask a question that goes no further, like, why is pleasure good? To answer that, Gert agrees with John Stuart Mill. Mill thought that if you desire something, then that's kind of like perceiving that it's good. Mill wanted us to think of human desires as goodness detectors, just like our eyes are color or shape detectors or our ears are sound detectors. Human desires are a form of sense perception. They sense what's good. You could be wrong, in the same way that you can see things that are blue when they're really green and the light's wrong or something's wrong with your eyes, but uh, the only evidence that something is blue is that people see it as blue. If you try to figure out any other reason for saying that something is blue, it's gonna bottom out in, look, normal people see it that way. Desire is like that when it comes to getting justified beliefs that something's good. So now connect this back to revenge now. The conclusion has to be that revenge is good because normal people do desire it. It's, a, it's just a standard human desire. Everybody has that desire probably, even if not everybody acts on it. Do you think the goodness of revenge ultimately depends on whether the individual desires it? I think that evolution just has equipped people with a short list of things that are the kind of things that normal human people have as possible objects of desire. And my view is that the word we have for those things, the word for object of normal, non-crazy human desire, is good. Not every human desire is a desire for something good for Gert. But the human desires that are close to universal and normal or understandable are. And even more interesting is that Gert may well think that revenge is good even if it doesn't get us anything else, like pleasure or happiness. Unlike Mill, Gert doesn't think that all good things have to lead to happiness to be good. Happiness is not the only fundamental good. Maybe an act of revenge brings you no pleasure and brings you no happiness. But it must be done. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! Kurt has a second argument for the goodness of revenge, and it has to do with the kind of desire it is. The philosopher Bernard Williams noticed that there are some desires, like wanting to see your grandchildren, that are very different than other desires, like wanting to get an appointment with your doctor. Wanting to see your grandchildren is a desire that keeps you alive. It gives a mortal life meaning. Williams called these categorical desires. These meaning-giving, life-sustaining desires are the archetype of the good. The desire for revenge, Gert argues, 
is just like that. There are people whose life is shaped. I'm going to stay alive until I get this revenge. They're not happy people because something terrible happened to them. But once that thing happened to them, then they have a real, not only a desire, but it's a desire for a categorical kind of a good, the kind of good that can give meaning to a a life or a big stretch of a life. I am going to kill Bill. One of the things people want when they read stories or go to the movies is to see people. They want to care about the main characters and they want to see them pursue something that's worth pursuing and they want to see them get it. It only makes sense that kind of a movie, even in the failure of revenge, if people are regarding the goal as a good for the person they care about. Here's the caveat. Good for Gert doesn't mean morally good. Something being good doesn't imply that it's morally worthy of obtaining, or even that it's morally okay to do it. Money, power, those things are good. It's not controversial that they're good. But of course, a lot of immoral behavior is motivated by the desire for money and power. In fact, Gert thinks that morality probably always prohibits revenge. It's the one good that requires the suffering of another. So the view has this strange consequence that there are these goods that happen to be morally wrong to pursue. Well then, let me ask you this strange question then. What good is revenge as a good if they can't ever justify seeking it? My answer is that moral assessment is just one kind of assessment. Most people, you know, if you're lucky, most people you know care a lot about morality. Most of them care about it up to some limit. But not everybody does. It's not rationally mandatory to care about morality. If you happen to be like some powerful person, rich, super rich person in the United States, then look, if you don't care about morality, you're a bad person. But that doesn't mean you're crazy at all. You you can totally understand how somebody who has so much power that they're not going to get punished even if they're caught is not irrational for being uh, immoral, it's, but it's still the case that nobody wants to act irrationally. So in your view, the question, why be moral is an open question, but why be rational is not. That's right. It's, it, I, I would agree emphatically with the second claim you made. I think there, the, the, the question, why be moral, you said it's open. Uh, what I would say is there are plenty of reasons to be moral. It's just that it's not rationally mandatory that you care about those reasons. So here are some reasons to be moral you're much less liable to hurt people. It's just that some people, rational people even, don't care that much about that. Putting it all together then, when we're cheering on for the person in a movie to get revenge, we're in fact cheering on immoral actions. Yeah, most of the time that's probably true. When we last saw producer Sandra Burton, she was in an argument with a guy about cultural appropriation. Pretty quickly, it became about whether you're allowed to make generalizations about white people. Here's the conclusion of that argument. But notice, in the background, there's a party going on. Lots of Whitney Houston. No offense, but if I've had probably 100 conversations with white men telling me this exact same thing, I get to generalize and say that white men have a problem with being called out. I guess what I'm saying is I was raised... I was raised to at least be mindful not to generalize about other groups. And to at least be mindful. And so it always it does feel very funny to me to suddenly see it, because it wasn't always the way. 
This conversation I had went right back to what George Yancey talked about in his keynote and explained why he got such a vicious response. Discussions of race always seem to devolve into whether anyone is allowed to say anything general about white people. It was 1 a.m. For the rest of the night, I was in a weird funk from that conversation. Even though walking away, he seemed to feel much better. Though I felt like I did the right thing, I couldn't help but think of all the millions of other things I could have said. Better things, way smarter than what I actually said. Instead, I watched acrobats with a woman named Fabienne and had more conversations about philosophy that sprung up naturally. While Sandra was walking around the library trying to get some white people woke, I was taking things a lot less seriously and decided to play a game. I went and found quotes from famous philosophers, and I then paired them with quotes I got from bullshit generators across the internet, where some algorithm puts words together randomly to generate deep-sounding thoughts. I went around asking people if they could tell the difference. I was testing a theory about my own field. So what's your name? Buddy. Buddy. All right, Buddy. As I told you before, half of these are internet-generated pieces of bullshit, and half of these are famous philosophers, and you're going to try to tell the difference between the two. The world is made up of the sort of things one can think. Oh, man, that's a good one. Um, Bullshit or famous philosopher? Could be Hegel. That is indeed a famous philosopher. That is from the philosopher McDowell. Okay. Imagination is only possible in subjective knowledge. Sounds bullshit. That is definitely bullshit. You are, t- you are two for two. The limits of my language mean the limits of my world. Wittgenstein? Absolutely, you got it. The self is only a threshold, a door, a becoming between two multiplicities. Oh, wow. That's probably a real philosopher. That is a philosopher. God, you're good at this. That's Deleuze. Greed is born in the gap where faith has been excluded. Doesn't sound like a philosopher. So you're going bullshit? Yeah. Five for five. (laughs) You're amazing at this. This wasn't looking good for my theory. I was hoping that people would be roughly 50-50 on deciphering bullshit from philosophy. On the nagging suspicion that a lot of philosophy is indistinguishable from pseudo-profound, randomly generated buzzwords. Psychologist Gordon Pennycock and his colleagues released a study in 2015 that asked people to rate the profundity of statements that were randomly generated using New Age buzzwords like manifestation. He found that people who accepted bullshit statements as profound tended to be worse at math, engaged in conspiratorial reasoning, were more religious, and believed in the paranormal. On the other hand, people who were really good at rejecting bullshit scored higher in what you might call analytic thinking, logical reasoning, the use of statistics and math. I wanted to test this from the other side. What about the people who are supposed to be producing profound work? Is their work distinguishable from randomly generated stuff? My new friend Buddy made me a little more hopeful. But then I noticed some professional philosophers across the room, really prominent ones too, probably there to give talks. I decided to test my theory on them. All right, introduce yourselves, philosophers. All right, I'm Kian Dar, uh, professor at NYU. And I'm Kieran Setia, professor at MIT. Okay. Democracy is what it is only in the difference 
by which it defers itself and differs from itself. I'm, I'm afraid that sounds like philosophy. Yeah, uh, I mean, wh why did you say bullshit are What about bullshit and philosophy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It does sound yeah, like yeah, fair it was, enough. It, fair enough. Not, yes, not yeah. made by an algorithm. Not, not made by an algorithm, yeah. but maybe yeah. still. That sounds like human, human product. That is Jacques Derrida. Yeah. That is Jacques okay. Derrida. Okay. Man is in the frequent state of being, ruled by discontinuity without realizing it. Is there a comma between being and, uh, and ruled by discontinuity? Uh, so, sorry. Man, discontinuity? Okay, sorry. Man is in the frequent state of being ruled by yeah. discontinuity, discontinuity without realizing it. I think it's true. It's, yep. it's not only philosophy, oh, yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> if that's bullshit, then bullshit is good. That's really... Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Someone has accidentally, without intending to, hit upon a profound truth. Who, who is that? That is internet-generated bullshit. No. <laughs> I, I need to find this website. This could save me a lot of time. I, this is going to be this is going to be easy. But all right, experiences themselves are states or or occurrences that inextricably combine receptivity and spontaneity. It sounds like my colleague John McDowell. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, my ex-colleague John McDowell. I'm afraid. Who's my colleague too? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. yes. <laughs> that is John McDowell. That That's yeah. right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the friend is not another I, but an otherness imminent in selfness, a becoming other of the self. That sounds. Not that's just real. That's philosophy. Yeah, like Levinas, like Levinas or, or Jean-Luc Nancy or someone. I don't know. That's it's philosophy. It's philosophy. Are we wrong? We're wrong again. You're giving us a look. That, that is Giorgio Agamben. Uh, okay. Okay. The subject is interpolated into a textual paradigm of discourse that includes culture as a paradox. It, it also uh, sounds like philosophy like to me. You think you're, I think we may divide on this one. You're looking. I'm going to say, yeah, ah, oh, geez. No, it does, it does seem like it, uh, it would be a really good algorithm that could. I think it's just telling out that I'm credulous and I think it's all for, have I said no to anything yet? I think it, yeah, it's okay. all. I'm also going to go for philosophy. <laughs> for philosophy. That is internet generated bullshit. We, we have an astonishing level of interpretive charity and we can find some truth. Even in even in internet generated bullshit, with me it's it's a, it's the what's the opposite of charity? It's like an, an astonishing <laughs> level of cynicism like of cynicism, where like it all it all sounds like babble to me. So like it's the distinction between it and, and real babble. It's well, let's ask a serious question now. Is the difference between bullshit and non-bullshit just a matter of interpretive charity? I mean, couldn't we just be incredibly charitable? Just about. And is it, or is bullshit not in the content of the very senses? I'm going to let Kian handle, oh. handle this one. <laughs> <laughs> bullshit is, uh, well, being, but bullshit has got to do with the state of mind of the person producing it, if it was, a, if it was produced by a person at all. Uh, so I guess even this, this random stuff that is generated by random number generators is only sort of bullshit by courtesy. You have to raise to a certain level uh, before you even count as real bullshit. Classifying something as bullshit is already a certain level of charity since you're thinking, well, at least the person, <laughs> the person uh, had some desires or other with regards to uh, the production of this stuff, albeit they were kind of ignoble desires. It, it is true that I, I in, in context, I will be willing to, to get, 
run with almost any sentence or sentence fragment. Given a suitable context of philosophy, I would give it almost anything a chance to, to make some kind of sense. But you know, if we're interested in helping people become better bullshit detectors, uh, as like Harry Frankfurt, you know, our teacher was uh, concerned with, you know, it's it's a uh, it might be a you know one of the barriers to our job is to making people better bullshit detectors, right? I mean, I would stand by the I, the thought that. It, bullshit detection is not going to be a sentence-by-sentence sentence thing, and it's going to depend on context, seems right to me. So I think if you were the kind of person who's prone to dismiss stuff as bullshit, given just one sentence out of context, you probably would be dismissive of a lot of philosophy. Because if you went to Journal of Philosophy and picked out the worst sentence out of context in many articles, it would look, it would look pretty bad. And I think the thought, the right response is to think, I, I won't make a judgment about whether this is bullshit until I have some sense of the of the context. Seems reasonable to me. Um, so, in that sense, I, I'm standing. I stand by my my failure on the on the bullshit test. Philosophers Kian Dor and Kieran Setia. Kieran Setia was actually on two episodes of Hi-Fi Nation. Hear more from him on episode one of season two, the bottom of the curve and episode 10 of season one, A Better Love. In our final philosophy short of the day, we're going to look at moral relativism with one of its most prominent defenders. I'm David Wong. I'm a professor of philosophy in the uh, philosophy department at Duke University. I agree with most moral relativists in holding that there is no single true morality. But in addition, I want to say that there's only a bounded plurality of moralities that are true. In other words, there's no one true morality, but not all moralities are true. One example that comes to mind is a doctor has found that the patient has a pretty serious illness, perhaps terminal. In places like China, Hong Kong, it would be regarded as fairly normal for the doctor to go to the family first and say, well, what should I tell your loved one, the patient? And the family says, well, it's maybe best not to tell our father, our mother. Oh, we just want our loved one to be comfortable in whatever time is left. Uh, whereas I think in the West, the tendency would be for the doctor to go directly to the patient and um, break the news. It's not just the tendency. It's actually written into the code of ethics, even in federal law in some cases. Uh, I think that is a matter of there being a higher value placed on personal autonomy in, in the West, whereas in, in East Asian moral traditions such as Confucianism, who we are as persons is seen to inherently involve our closest relationships, that who I am very much is the, the son of, of these people, the husband of this person. The, the father of, of this child. Those are central to my identity, and my welfare is very much bound up with the welfare of these other people, and theirs with mine. Then when it comes time to apply this to a concrete situation, there, I think, is a, a much greater receptivity to treating a person's welfare as very much tied up with the welfare of those who love that person. That would be one example, I think, where I would be inclined to think there isn't a single correct answer as to what's the right thing to do. 
Moral relativism is a pretty strong term. Almost everyone accepts that in some circumstances there may be more than one right thing to do. That happens all the time. That shouldn't be enough to make you a relativist. Relativism is supposed to be more than that. I think that one should arrive at a position on these matters through concrete consideration of particular disagreements and differences we have. I want to use an example just to help me think about it. Vegans versus meat-eating omnivores, arguing about the morality of killing and eating animals. Some differences and disagreements are ones that are based on disagreements about the facts that don't involve values, uh, basic values. And in those cases, you know, our, our job is to try to get straight on the facts. Okay, there are facts about whether non-human animals are intelligent, emotional creatures who suffer bodily pain and have cognitive abilities similar to humans. Other kinds of disagreements may be based on our tendencies to believe what is an advantage to us. So we may benefit from a certain kind of social arrangement, moral arrangement, and tend then to uh, consider the evidence that argues in favor of the, that arrangement and ignore the evidence that undermines it. Meat-eaters do benefit from an arrangement where non-human animals are subservient, exist for our interests in their flesh. So we are motivated not to consider evidence of their moral status. If that's the case, then we, we have to examine the disconfirming evidence. But what led me to my limited form of relativism are certain kinds of disagreements, such as the one I described initially about differences in the way people prioritize autonomy versus relationship, uh, where I don't see that there's uh, some kind of error that's based on getting the facts wrong or uh, or, or people having a certain position and refusing to consider other positions because uh, they, they benefit from, from a particular arrangement. This would be the case where a person is knowledgeable about all the facts about non-human animals. They don't disagree with the vegans about any of the facts. They simply value their pleasure that meat-eating brings over the value of animal lives and comfort. I think there are some things that uh, stem from the fact that there are many different things that human beings can most prize, most value. And there's not just one way of prioritizing those things. So that's one way that I arrive at this kind of more limited version of, of relativism by way of considering the particular kinds of moral disagreements we have and realizing that some disagreements are resolvable. Other disagreements, I think, aren't. And the way they aren't tends to me to indicate that they stem from the pluralism of value that, that, that human beings can recognize. There's just one, more than one thing that is most important to us. That's the difference between David Wong's moral relativism and what you might call moral absolutism. Wong thinks that when the values are fundamentally different, both are right. They both have true moralities. An absolutist thinks that one of these people has some screwed up values one of them is wrong. Why not go full-blown relativism? Why not go, there's uh, the morality of here and the morality of there, mm -hmm. and anything gives There's when you say that there's no true morality. Uh, I think one theory, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a possible explanation of why we have something we call morality, uh, which is that we human beings 
our kind of life depends on cooperation. It's my theory that morality is that part of human culture that developed to help facilitate and regulate cooperation between human beings. It's that kind of way of regulating, facilitating cooperation that is not supposed to depend on force or coercion or deception. It's supposed to be that way of regulating cooperation that can get the largely voluntary compliance of people because it's, it's a way that they can come to accept as fair and, and that advances their interests as human beings. And by interests, I mean not just the uh, nakedly material benefits, but things that we can see as meaningfully contributing to a good life for human beings. With that conception of morality, I argue that just as there are different ways to construct a good bridge, given the materials you have available, and given the, the particular geography of the situation you're dealing with, you have to design it for that situation, and you have to design it with uh, the structural properties of the material you have available. Uh, so it is with morality, it's, it serves a certain purpose. The purpose uh, constrains uh, the kind of thing that can fulfill it. Uh, not anything can fulfill that purpose. It is 6.30 a.m. and people are for real filing out. And finally, the last event ended to tired claps and groans as people peeled themselves off the floor. Well, I guess that's it. Everyone is leaving arm in arm, passed out on each other's shoulders. Alrighty then. Special thanks to the Brooklyn Public Library and the cultural services of the French Embassy. Look for a night of ideas in a town near you. Sandra Burton is a freelance podcast producer. You can find her at sandraburton.com. Thank you for listening to Hi-Fi Nation. There's one more episode in Season 2. It's going to come out in mid-July. And I have a lot of things going on for Season 3. As you're listening to this, I am on a plane traveling to Australia, where I'll be all summer producing the show from the Australian National University in Canberra. And there are some potentially big news for Hi-Fi Nation, so subscribe to the show, stay in touch, subscribe to our blog, go to hifination.org. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 